0: I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners... Because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu. Today I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writer's House in our Wexler studio by Danny Snelson, whose research and teaching blend a study of poetry and poetics with work on digital and network cultures, material text studies, and media theory, who's finishing a book titled The Little Database, A Poetics of Media Formats. Is it still called that, Danny? It still is who likes to probe big data on the one hand while operating in homage to the little magazine on the other, go figure, <laughs> whose energetic and precise online editorial work can be seen on UbuWeb, web Penn Sound, Eclipse, and Jacket 2, and who, with Mashinka Furunz and Avi Alpert, works as one-third of the academic performance group called Research Service. And by Tracy Morris, Professor of Humanities and Media Studies at Pratt Institute and currently visiting professor at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, poet-performer, musical poet, sound, artist, musician, whose work in many formats transforms and complicates her subjects of abuse, power, and the body through repetition and accretive adjustments, sonic restatements, and substitutions, whose poetry collections include Handholding, five kinds, rhyme scheme, intermission, and more, whose work can be discovered in many anthologies, including the racial imaginary writers on race in the life of the mind, the breakbeat poets, new American poetry in the age of hip-hop, And in exaltation of forms, contemporary poets celebrate the diversity of their art. And who, with Charles Bernstein, the topic of today's poem talk, co-edited Best American Experimental Writing 2016. And by Marjorie Perloff, whose many important critical and scholarly books include The Dance of the Intellect, Wittgenstein's Ladder, The Futurist Moment, Unoriginal Genius, to name just a few. And whose recent book is Edge of Irony Modernism in the Shadow of the Habsburg Empire. And among whose poetry-related essays and activities in the last few years are an article on Susan Howe's late style, a course of lectures at the C.S. Eliot Summer School, and the annual Little Gidding Lecture, an essay on Beckett's poetry for a collection called The New Beckett, an interview with Caetano Veloso in the Los Angeles Review of Books who was born in Vienna, not Caetano, but Marjorie, born in Vienna and left with her family after the annexation of Austria by Nazi Germany, came to the U.S. and has written that story and much more in a memoir the Vienna Paradox. Marjorie Perlov, it's so nice to see you back here.
1: Nice to see you. At, at
0: the Writer's House. And Danny, from the same City of Angels, you appear. <laughs> yeah. Returning. Happy so to be you here. would you call Los Angeles the City of Angels, right? Not every day, but occasionally. Sure. <laughs> it's great to see you. And Tracy, you came a distance, but compared to these two, it seems like just a hop and a skip and a jump. It's true. It's I don't good have good the to right see to you. complain. Good
2: no, to see you. never.
0: It's great to see you all. Well, the four of us have gathered here to talk about a poem by the aforementioned Charles Bernstein. First, a little context. We record this episode on a day when we are celebrating Charles Bernstein's retirement from teaching after many years on the faculties of SUNY Buffalo and here at Penn. And surrounding us around the writer's house now and soon are and will be more than 100 poets and other friends descending on our little cottage to help celebrate Charles. So if our listeners... To this conversation, here a bit of extra excitement in our voices, that will partly explain it. The poem we've chosen to talk about is, As If the Trees by Their Very Roots Had Hold of Us, which was published in an early book, 1979, called Senses of Responsibility. And this poem has been selected as well by the poet to appear in All the Whiskey in Heaven Selected Poems, published by FS&G in 2010. There are several early recordings of performances of this poem, one given at Folio Books in Washington, D.C. in 1978 and a remarkable performance at the Grand Piano in San Francisco in February 1979 where Charles read with Barrett Watton. Charles would love it if we played that one because of its rich paraphono textuality, really evident you can hear the sound of the recording, real tapping against the tape head, and all the grand piano-ish noise and people asking questions. But we have chosen instead <laughs> a somewhat easier to hear recording made at the Place Center in New York City on December 18th, 1977, a reading with Kathy Acker that was organized by Phil Smith. So here now is a 27-year-old Charles Bernstein performing as if the trees by their very roots had hold of us.
3: Strange to remember a visit really not so long ago which now seems finally past. Always it's a kind of obvious thing, I guess, amazed by that cycle that first you anticipate a thing, and it seems far off. The distance has a weight you can feel hanging on you. And then it's there, that point, whatever, which now, while it's happening, seems to be constantly slipping away, like the sand through your fingers in an old movie, until you can only look back on it. And yet, you're still there, staring at your thoughts in the window of the fire you find yourself before. We've gone over this a thousand times, and here again, combing that same section of beach or inseam for that. I'm no longer sure when or exactly where, and yet, appearing unrewarding as it is in terms of tangible results, seems so necessary. Hope, which is, after all, no more than a splint of thought projected outward, looking to catch some where. What can I say here, that the ease or difficulty of such memories doesn't preclude that harsher necessity of going on always in a new place, under different circumstances? And yet, we don't seem to have changed. It's as if these years that have gone by are all a matter of record. But if the real facts were known, we were still reeling from what seems to have just happened, but which, by the accountants keeping, occurred years ago. Years ago. It hardly seems possible, so little really has happened. We show ourselves hour by hour in anticipation that soon there will be nothing to do. Pack the sandwich and let's eat later. And of course, the anticipation is quite appropriate, accounting for the most part for whatever activity we do manage, eternally buzzing over the time, unable to live in it. Maybe if we go up a ways, we can get a better view. But of course, in that sense, views don't improve. In the present moment, if we can only see it, which is to say, to begin with, stop looking with such anticipation, what is unfolding before us puts to rest any necessity for progression. So, more of these tracings, as if by some magic of the phonetic properties of these squiggles, Or does that only mystify the power of presence, which is, as well, a sort of postponement?
0: I think it might be fun to start with the sense of disorientation that the speaker has and that we feel responding to the poem, it seems to be one of those Bernstein poems where you get the sense that he wants to remember something or to go somewhere, but we can't ever seem to get there. Can you give us an instance of disorientation in the text, Tracy? Uh,
2: I I do have a thought about that, and it starts with the title. Uh, I just, I'm kind of stuck, uh, it it sticks with me, as if the trees by their very roots had a hold of us. So it's not as if the tree roots had a hold of us. It's as if the trees by their roots have a hold on us. So if we think about it metaphorically, it's what emerges from the roots that takes hold, not the roots themselves. And I think when we think about roots, we think of them sometimes like vines or things that grow around other things and can mm-hmm. incorporate things. Mm-hmm. And trees are not like bushes. You know, they tend to grow up and are independent when we think of them independently. So what does it mean for something to take hold of something that is growing up by itself? Mm. So it's a, sort of a, dis, a temporal, sort of, not temporal, a spatial sort of disorientation. Yeah. I don't see it as being about
1: disorientation, Al. Sorry. No, go ahead, please. (laughs) Not not at all. I think it's a parody from start to finish, but a very clever one, although in some cases, in some places, it could be a little dated. I recognize it because I lived through this period. This is a parody of every after dinner speech, but especially poet speeches. This is, it makes me think, especially when I heard it, of the introduction that poets used to give, like Mark Strand or John Hollander, Richard Howard would be a perfect example and they tell you all about the long ago and how long ago it was and of course it's over since it's so long ago but everything is slipping away and it's about presence it's a satire as you get at the very end the power of presence presence used to be the big thing in the 1970s in poetry it had to have presence you had to have presence
0: so it's a Parody of poets speak of a certain kind. It's a
1: parody of cliché. Every word is a cliché. Every line in this poem. I don't see anything. Just I think it's very oriented. In other words, it oriented knows exactly against what it's something. Doing. I get oriented. you. Oriented. So I don't okay. see it as this, particularly. So the
0: speaker is either satirizing that yeah. convention, or is parodying it or echoing it so much. The
1: sand that slips through your fingers. It's also movies. Mm. It could be anything: movies, plays, books. So uh, can I
2: ask a, can I ask Marjorie a question about that? <laughs> yeah of that? course. So it's not just this is really interesting. It's not just the poet's speech. It's like any kind of speech because you were kind of taught that kind of rhetoric, right? You were
1: taught this kind of rhetoric and to be kind of casual, but it isn't casual. Strange to remember a visit really not so long ago, which now seems finally past. It's a completely ridiculous statement, isn't it? Always it's kind of obvious, I guess, amazed by that cycle that first you anticipate a thing and it seems far off. That used to be the biggest thing, far off, distance,
4: Danny and I think yeah. I'd, I'd, Where are we? <laughs> I like this reading, and and I think with with so many of, of Charles's works that the the within the parody, it's it's serious play throughout. Mm. Um, and I think that there's a lot of really clever things that are going on within that, uh, even just starting from the title, where, of course, you also hear plays, I think, on John Ashbery, uh, Some well, Trees. Well, that's where I wanted to and go, also Some I, Trees for sure. Yeah, go ahead. I'm alongside sorry. that, I think, T.S. Eliot, What Are the Roots That Clutch, right? And, yeah. and Charles definitely. I think that's I,
0: much but closer I think, than I I don't Ashbery. know if this is a modification of Marjorie's... Um, hmm. You know the, the kind of reading that once you hear, you can't get it out of your head. The, your yeah, well, your interpretation—that's that, just what I read. Yeah, I read but it. I, want, I don't want to push back against that reading. But I want to add back to this idea that I kept writing "J.A." next to a certain number of lines, Ashbury. Well, I mean, uh, a new place under different circumstances, and yet we don't seem to have changed. It's as if that's so, Ashbury. Um, The ironic mention of tangible results, and you know in an Ashbery poem you're never going to get tangible results. I think that cleverness and that antic quality Mm -hmm. persists in Bernstein's writing from this early poem to late poems. So I don't – yes, he's mocking a kind of speech, but he seems to have adopted it as a way of a kind of getting nowhereness that's very rebellious – in poetry, especially at this time, I don't know. Does this does this make any sense to you?
4: Yeah, and I I'd, I'd I think one of the lines that um one of the words that pops out in the first three lines is amazed, which is also it's such the an opening ashberry word. Well, from, from, from some trees, some trees, some trees. Some trees these, these are amazing. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> we did that in sync. Yeah. Um, well, I kept hearing the ashberry there. So I,
0: you know, I, I don't think we're at odds here in this reading. I just try to understand Charles Bernstein's tone always and he may be lampooning but he also kind of likes embodying that con- flattening out himself
1: but Ashbery himself is always lampooning so then it would be a double you can say yes because Ashbery himself would say it hap it's happening seems to me constantly slipping away you're right Very you would find that right? in the poem but i but i mean he's so fond of Ashbery that and and I think I'm he's thinking- mocking Ashbery well, but it would be if you if you would say this is no. The way if he's writes. saying,
0: Marjorie, if he's saying, and Tracy, I want I want to hear from you after this. He's he's yeah. This is crazy. Um, he's saying, look, if all poets speak the way Mark Strand speaks, not to pick on anybody, but okay, too late. Um, then it's amazing how the Ashberian mode actually embodies that and addresses it and satirizes it and takes that flat unpoetic, poetic speech and turns it into the new poetry that's going to go deeply into that set of problematic of official verse culture questions. Help us out, Tracy.
2: Well, I just think everything is material and everything has materiality and textuality. texturality. And so it's fine if he if he's making fun of a speech, but using it as a forum to talk about something that's very profound. Mm -hmm. The not getting anywhere ness as a way of talking about not getting anywhere because those speeches don't really get anywhere because they've been overused. This I think is a really interesting mode to think about, like sort of revivifying the cliche. Mm -hmm. So instead of it being something that one glosses over, it's one something that somebody that you go into to find a place where there is nothing.
4: Yeah, and I would, I would build on that exactly, especially with the materiality and the the poem, because there's a lot of things you can see on the page that you don't quite hear in the recording. I mean, he does a lot of really interesting emphasis, and mm-hmm. and I, like early, I'm really interested in this as an early version of Charles's uh, like you know patented overemphasis of poetic words. But here it's a little more serious, and and yet one of the words is and yet in quotes. There's there's quotes peppered throughout which he doesn't not, do in the later poetry. No, and they're not real citation. I went searching for all of these. Because whenever I see a quote, I want to throw it into Google, um, and and a lot of these don't end you, anywhere. You, Danny Snelson, throw things into <laughs> Google. However, there are lots. Of, I think the Ashbury reference is there. Um, I, when I when I hear it, yeah. see the phrase a thousand times. Right after a reference to an old movie, of course, I'm hearing Casablanca, which he cites in the cassette number four. And so I think that there's all number of cliches, both from I think Marjorie's point is really an interesting reading from the kind of cliched speech, but also cliches from films, uh, cliches from everyday diction, cliches from accounting and so on. Martyr. Well, Hal,
1: I think you may be right. I mean, I hadn't really thought about that, but it's like a bad Ashbery poem yeah. in a way. And maybe it was that, when was this, 79, 1970? Well,
0: it was published in 79, no, but we no, had no, the recording no, no, no. from it 77. It might, so might a be very like saying, okay, poem. you want
1: an Ashbery poem? I'll give you an Ashbery poem. That's it. And for the sake That's of it. Harold Bloom. Some That's of this it. sounds like Harold Bloom to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Necessity, yeah. you know, all those essays. in Harold Bloom's, one of the books, I forget which one, they have titles like Mark Strand and that Harsher Necessity, I swear. Things like that. I don't know if that very—not that very <laughs> title. But it does sound in a way like, okay, you want that kind of poem? And at yeah. that time, Charles wasn't writing that, boy. Well, I can do that kind of poem. What really sounds like Ashbery is we shore ourselves hour by hour in anticipation that soon there will be nothing to do, pack a sandwich,
0: and let's eat Which later. Which is flattened, eliotic line followed yeah. by— uh, you know, demotic reference to a sandwich. Perfect, perfect. But it may
1: be a reaction to reading Harold Bloom rave about Ashbery. Mm, mm. You know, I mean, that might be the immediate, just the immediate stimulus. Yeah. I'm not saying that's what it ends up being, and after all, he chose it to be in his, co- in his collected, which is interesting. It so, is interesting. So it's obviously a poem he cares and about. And let's face
0: it, I mean, we could, of course, ask Charles Bernstein, but it seems to, 76, 77, 78, 79, the lit crit field was dominated by several strands, one of them was this uh, ladder, ladder lad, well, there's that. But I was thinking about the Bloom thing, the Bloomian formation, you know, taking Stevens and reading, almost reading Freudian anxiety into it. And that produced a kind of result that, Charles, that would drive Charles Bernstein crazy. Now, when I said at the beginning, disoriented or lost, I was, meaning, I was thinking about lines like this. Um, I'm no longer sure when or exactly where. We get this throughout Charles's poems. Um, I think of a poem of 2001, 2002, in a restless world like this is, which I'm mad at Charles for not including in the selected poem because it's mm. such a great, great poem. In that one, the disorientation is about never being able to tell a story in any kind of straight way, which Ashbery satirizes himself for doing all the time. You know, like, I wish I could just unbraid my complications and, and be like any other person telling a story, but I can't. And I think Bernstein is celebrating that what I call lostness. I'm no longer sure when or exact I strange to remember, but I can't remember. What are you thinking, Tracy?
2: Well I I would agree. I would go back to the title and say like if we think about it metaphorically as the roots of the the, the past and the branches is the future, that it's like we have to be here. We're just here. There is no before and after here. It's got oh, a whole bunch of things, right? And that is all, and it's also all we need. So I, that was one of the questions I have for you, Marjorie, is in all of the satire and the commentary on Bloom and Ashbury, do you feel like through that text he's mining something else, or is that the main priority of those lines?
1: I, I mean, I can't see it as that he's serious when he says... I don't know where, when, or the time, and all that.
2: I don't think
0: he's serious at all, but he knows what kind of poem he wants to write, which is not yeah. something that will straighten that out.
1: Actually, where it's unlike Ashbery is that in Ashbery you really don't know from line to line. Often, is he serious or is he kidding? You know, Isn't is that, that true funny? of reading
0: Charles Bernstein?
1: No, I don't think so. Not for me. No, Okay. I think in that you sense, you you know, it's more. It, I never can take any of it this seriously. I have the
0: most beautiful vantage, ways, Marjorie. What? I have the most beautiful vantage. I'm looking at you in the Wexler Studio, and in the control room behind the glass is Charles Bernstein. And when you said, uh, <laughs> well, and when you said, I know what Tony. He he gave me a face,
4: <laughs> but it was a, it was a oh.
0: completely inscrutable face. Uh, <laughs> Well, <laughs> no, I want. I, want, I think I, you might be right.
1: I mean, so more of these tracings now. For instance, tracings. Of course, is a favorite Ashbury word. Right. Tracings of all kind, yeah. as if by some magic. But I never believe here. I, I think I, I take it as satire. I'm sorry. I take it as pretty much straightforward satire, right. brilliantly done parody. Right. And right. and he has, and it's not parody though of one thing. That, that's also – it makes it it's many different things. But it makes me think of the 1970s and the way people actually talked mm. and gave these ridiculous talks. Yeah. You know. <laughs>
0: yeah. Of
1: yeah. I'm not quite sure when. It's a distant memory. I want to remember it, but I can't, you know, and all that.
0: Oh, well, I was don't us.
1: understand the quotes, though. Um, well, I want to maybe... turn to
0: Danny on that. So here are two things for you, Danny. One is we've noticed the practice of quotes here that doesn't persist into the later period poetry and we've also noticed the uh, italicization here that is a cue for the reader but now so many decades later that Bernstein knows how he wants to emphasize we get those italicizations in the performance and he doesn't need to do it in the in the typography.
4: You want to comment on either of those or both? I think, well, the last word that you ended on is one that I wanted to think out loud about for a bit, which is typography here. And and I think that actually to, to maybe... Uh, uh, go against some of what Marjorie's it's saying. Because I like to take it seriously. I, I think that the squiggles, I like to think that the squiggles, which are the letters, are roots in a certain way. Mm. And I think that there is, I think, a, a mm. pretty beautiful uh, theory of reading or maybe even audio recording that you could surface from this if you were to take it seriously, um, ending with the phonetic properties of these squiggles, which would, of course, be the reading of the poem itself. I think that, like in the other early works, there's a, a direct attention to the materiality of the page and the letters on the page. And so when when all those cliches are in quotes, like you can't help but see them more as material bits of letters on a page.
0: Wait, you're saying that Charles Bernstein writes into the text of his poem a reference to the the poem itself? How could you be saying such <laughs> a thing? I'm doing a Charles Bernstein there, but of the course, way. like, mm. and, but
4: but in a, in a particular relationship to sound and performance, right? So the emphasis that comes out in the italics, but also there's there's all all kinds of things like um, a, a matter of record is, is a line that pops out to me. Um, reeling, uh, r e e. L-I-N-G, yeah. um, which says, so, but if after the real facts were known, we were still reeling in the same way that an audio recording device might be yeah. reeling.
0: Yeah, totally um, true. Um, mm. Tracy, yes. uh, we heard of the voice of a 27-year-old Charles Bernstein. Yeah. Um, let's reflect for a minute. Since this is a day when we're thinking about the whole career of this poet, what thoughts do you have <laughs> about hearing that voice? So not a voice you heard live cuz you didn't know him then.
2: No, I did not. Um it was the it was really jarring, I have to say the first time because you can hear you know, it's it's like in a weird way it's like well is that the tree? Is that the roots? The branches? What is it? Because you hear the voice that it's going to become, you know, the 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 more mature voice that it's going to become literally and poetically. But it, it also has its own quality. So the youthful quality informs this poem in a very different way than reading it on the page, knowing Charles as, a, as a, an adult, a non-27-year-old. So there's a temporality that actually speaks to a great foresight into how he will be feeling in 30, 40, 50 years, which is extraordinary. Did you hear. say 50 yeah, God willing. You're you know? pushing him pretty hard. 30, 30 yeah. 40, 50 years. It's Not that old. <laughs> uh, no, I mean going yeah. towards the future. But right. but to hear that through the voice yeah. in particular, to hear the maturity. Yeah. So this is not somebody trying to sound older than they are, but you hear the the, the germination of that more mature voice. Yeah. I will say one other thing. And that is, as Charles has gotten older, he's pushed his voice to more extreme. So he's more sarcastic and more broad in those sort of shifts than he was uh, hearing his poem I when he disagree. was younger. Oh, well, you would <laughs> know, interesting? You know I so. Today
1: I'm disagreeing with everybody. Do, no, do I disagree. But I think he's also much less the voice. so obviously satiric. Yeah. Much less. It's a young man's poem yeah. when his hmm. big thing was... Uh, this is about the same year in the same period where he got up at the MLA and gave his famous talk against you know the way people were reading William Carlos Williams right. and 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 Charles was very passionate in attack I mean I can't take the phonetic properties of our <laughs> squiggles seriously I mean everybody used to go and talk these are just my squiggles you know let me read my poem these are just squiggles these are the squiggles I made you know last night so I can't I can't believe Charles in a serious mode yeah. uses squiggles but I mean what's amazing about it, it and And I said then when we get to the power of presence, a kind of postponement, everybody was full of that kind of presence. My squiggles, my this, my—and there's a lot of Mm first-person language here. you're really right
0: about the use of the word presence, which is because it's at the end is really important. So
1: I I think he's gotten— I mean, he was brash, brashly satiric. And he's not, you know, you know—you don't stay satiric quite in that way when you get older. You just don't.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: I, so brash. I recommend. You know, recommend, brash and nasty in a way. I re- <laughs> it's a nasty poem.
0: I recommend. I think it's a nasty poem. I recommend that everyone listen to the grand piano recording, which is a little unhearable for poem talk because you really can't hear anything. But um, there, it's earlier than this. This, I think, is 79, but that was 77, I think. It's early, and I think and he's got a receptive audience at the Grand Piano, and I don't know whether that was his first first time ever reading uh, among the language poets of the Bay Area, uh, but I'm just going to guess that it was or near the beginning. And he was, I'm agreeing with Marjorie here, he was trying hard to be the poet that he wanted to be in front of colleagues who would agree with his ideas, his critique, but he was the satire was pushed pretty hard there. I think later, there's plenty of satire, and there's plenty of satire of voice, but he doesn't have to try as hard because it's exactly what we expect. Yeah. I, that's I neither that, here nor there, that I think that
4: barrier context is actually great because I mean, it comes out as a Tumba Press book in, in, in 1979, Senses of Responsibility, Lynn Higinian's yeah. Press. Right. And this is the first, this is the opening poem to that book, and and it's also the opening poem to all these readings, right? So there's something about from seventy seven to seventy nine, Charles Bernstein is going to start his recording, whatever whatever mm. performance he's about to do. Mm. This is the poem that starts it, and I think that's, no, that's actually yeah. Yeah. quite significant. And I think that it's really interesting that the chapbook they all look like poems, which is totally different than what you see in the two previous publications in Asylums mm-hmm. and Parsing, where you have write-throughs of Irving Goffman that play all over the page or list poems that's just the repetition of the word my and so forth. These look like poems. So I, mm. I, I think the satire point is a really good one and I think that there's something really interesting about performing poeticity for the Bay Area in particular mm. that might oh, be I interesting. Oh, I love that reading.
2: And yet I stand by my assertion <laughs> that, the, 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 that the mature voice that can be, that's more malleable and that can do things like make a broad joke Uttered that is more supple on the page and all of that, it's right there in that recording. Mm-hmm. It's not just sarcasm and nastiness. Well, that's true. It's the maturity, right. but it's not trying to give off maturity, if you want to use Goffman, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. just there, and then you just hear it borne out over time. So yeah. then the playfulness yeah. comes because the voice, in its maturity, not in its age, in its maturity, has a different kind of fluidity. Oh, yeah, yeah. What
0: do you all do More with subtle. Yeah. the yeah. moments in this poem and other earlier poems where you get an aphoristic statement? Again, this is an Ashbarian thing, maybe even a Stevensian thing. You get this this—an uh, axiomatic thing that you know is satirical because it gets fractured, but it sounds like something you should highlight in yellow or make a note of. I'll give you an example, and then you, you, you can all react. Hope... <laughs> which is after all. The after all is a key there. Right? Yeah, no right? one no, Don't believe what I'm about to okay. say. Hope, which is after all, no more than a splint of thought. and And it goes on. So I want to think, this is back to our tone question. I want to think, I want to take this seriously that underneath the satire is this idea that, you know, hope is no more than a splint of thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then I think, no, that's not Ridiculous. Right. Or, oh, is ridiculous. A of thought. So let's talk for a second <laughs> about the axiomatic or aphoristic Bernstein who comes, I think this is not a poem where we get a lot of it, but it becomes a major um, key for him. Anybody want to talk about that?
4: I really liked the sand stuff. Like it's a really sandy poem, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the, the thing <laughs> yes. I liked uh, the the, 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 bit, the first long quote is like the sand through your fingers in an old movie, which is a, just a ridiculous thing. And and the, the quote is <laughs> not it, like if you put that quote into Google, you will only get this poem. So it, it's something you seem like you've heard a thousand times, but you never actually. But have. you never like, have. That's very important. Which I think is really interesting, They're and not that, real quotes. And that sand connects to the to combing that same section of beach or inseam, which I think is really interesting, yeah. and then. And it comes up again in, uh, we shore ourselves hour by hour. So there's all these like beachy, sandy metaphors mm, in a mm-hmm. poem that's about trees, yeah. which I find really interesting.
0: I want to go around twice more. The first time, what I'd, la- I'd like to ask you to find something in this poem that leaps forward and anticipates the later Bernstein. We've already talked about this a little bit, let's maybe find in the text something that, some kind of mm-hmm. technique or tool or rhetorical device that looks forward. Um, and then and then the second time around, just uh, want to get final thoughts uh, on the poem. Who wants to start? I'll, I'll start if you want on this. Um, uh, the very beginning, um, strange to remember a visit, comma, really not so long ago, and then it goes on. That really not so long ago, there's so many opening gambits in... Charles's poems do that playful, like I don't. I'm not going to set us up in time. This is not a once upon a time kind of story. I'm winking at you. I'm making it up. I actually won't remember anything that I said. I remember. Um, that's a technique that I really admire in poems of the aughts in particular. All right, who else wants to do one?
1: Uh, well, uh, let me relate it to something first from the early period in Content's Dream. You know, one of the I forget now which essay it is. Maybe it's Stray Straws and Straw Men. There's the whole idea that what I'm fighting is the the transit theory of communication. I'm going to talk about that in my little talk today. As, is, as, tra- as, as from distinct to from transitive. Yeah. Uh, how about a horrible way to look at poetry? The transit theory of communication is straightforward from me to you. Now, look, you have here— um, the distance has a way you can feel hanging on you, and then it's there. That point, whatever, which now, while it's happening, seems to be constantly slipping away, which is just so wonderfully ridiculous because it isn't the point that's slipping away. One of Charles's devices, and that's still a device today, is a noun will be put in. What, what, something that seems to be slipping away? It can't really be. It's not the point that's slipping away. It's the memory that's slipping away. It's an image that might be slipping away. The might be slipping away, but not the point. So you always look at it. You have to always read it twice to realize, wait a minute, what's going on here from any point of view? Because it doesn't really make sense.
0: That's not only a great point in itself, Marjorie, but it, it kind of persuades us of your original reading of this <laughs> well, poem really, really well.
1: The you, because the trance, yeah. you know, you, he hated that idea of the poets always saying, and you do yeah, this, because, yeah. of course, it's always assuming everybody feels that.
4: Right. No, you're, you're, you're dead on about that. Uh, Danny? Um, yeah, <laughs> just to follow, I like the, the emphasis on, uh, and yet you're still here. I think is one of the things where I hear an echo, where there is a lot of disdain. I think in that that you, which which backs up some of what you're saying. The thing I wanted to say, and the the anticipation is, uh, there are so many trees in early language poetry. Like, I don't know why there are so many trees. <laughs> uh, following this, of course, there's Ron Silliman's famous collection In the American Tree, which is one of the early gatherings of language poets. And, and while I was researching this poem, I came across a poem I hadn't read before, which I, I do want to point to, which is um, Reading the Tree, one and two. Uh, these are two remixes that Charles did of the collection In the American Tree, uh, which I like, there was something about that that just seemed really interesting to me and and some way that the tree is a figure anticipates uh, a number of ways in which this group or or this kind of grouping would come to theorize and think of itself. Mm.
0: And of course, then you and I were quoting some trees, which is a sort of fundamental early young Ashbury poem. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of trees going in there. Tracy, do you find a, a, a device or a rhetorical turn that appears later?
2: I feel yes, maybe. Um, could be my rose-colored glasses, but I like the the whole stanza that starts with, we sure ourselves, sure, uh, Danny, hour by hour, and ends with unable to live in it. So it's, we sure ourselves hour by hour, in anticipation, and soon there will be nothing to do. <laughs> Pack a sandwich and let's eat here. And of course, the anticipation is quite appropriate, accounting, for the most part, for whatever activity we do manage. Eternally buzzing over the time, unable, unable to live in it. And that made me think romantically Mm. about all the whiskey in heaven, like this sort of Mm. eternal, an eternal experience with the beloved. Uh, So I wanted to add like sort of romance and Mm. care into the poem as well as um, sarcasm, sarcasm snark and sharp, you know, sort of literary criticism.
0: Fantastic. Okay, so now we're going to go around for final thoughts on this poem. Say anything that you came here to talk about but haven't had a chance to yet. So, who wants to start?
1: Well, let me just say, when you asked us to do it, I think we all thought it was a strange choice. You know, and at first I thought, why are we talking about this poem? It doesn't seem all that interesting. But it is very interesting, you know, just to see it in context and see the early and see the young Charles. But it's different from most of the early ones, too, as you point out, because the structure is different, too. And They're usually very tight in controlling interests and so Mm -hmm. forth. You get a much even tighter you know mm-hmm. and it sound tighter and so this is um, slightly unusual i think mm-hmm. actually yeah. I, I don't think it's so, so, on one t- hand, so we typical
0: have, no not typical we on one hand we have evidence bearing on that that he didn't that he first of all that he did collect it in the selected poems that's right so that's one thing that's presumably an affirmative thing and the other is he doesn't and i could be wrong but because Mining charles 's pen sound pages is not the easiest thing i 'm looking at him. Will you please organize your pen sound pages um, as far as I can tell he doesn 't read this poem anymore um, he He read it a number of times very early and then we don 't see it anymore. So that suggests maybe you know he doesn 't want to read
4: it anymore, so i don 't know, <laughs> but thank you for that comment. I think that was really good. Danny final thought. Um, I'll have my final thought on this final line. Um, or does that only mystify the power of presence, which is as well a sort of postponement? Um, it, it, I think it is a funny line, but it, it also, for me... I, it's kind of lovely. I, we've been it? we've been reading a lot of this back into the moment that he read it in the late 70s. Right. Um, my My particular interest with this poem and others is to think about it from the present. I'll be talking about this a little bit later. But I love the idea of misreading that final line to really be thinking about... Uh, a presence that a presence in nineteen seventy that we're only hearing in this really degraded uh, audio recording on MP three on pen sound. So of course it anticipates the postponement with which some, like I wasn't there in the seventies, but I, I I did get to hear it here. And and so I think there's a way in which the poem also hails me as a listener in two thousand and nineteen in a way that I find really um, magical. In in uh, t- to quote by some magic of the phonetic properties of these squiggles. Yeah, thank you. And
0: I wasn't being silly when I s- referred to a paraphonotextuality of the um, of the grand piano reading. I mean, that, it's just so full of noise, mm. and the the, the tape. I must have been a cassette because, or maybe it was real, real, but I guess cassette. And it was banging against the magnetic head. And you know, we left all that in there in pen sound, and it's really like an important moment, right? Can't really hear it, so we didn't use it. But really, an important moment where all that crap comes along with reading at the grand piano. I don't even know who made the recording. Maybe it was Bob Perlman, who we—he's the source of many of those recordings. But. Tracy, final thought?
2: Yeah, I want to just give a shout out to both Danny and Marjorie, and a word that Danny used, um, which I didn't get a chance to talk about, was "accountant," and sort of taken into account uh, what Marjorie was saying about the different types of materiality that are being used for sarcastic, romantic, incisive, mm-hmm. critical purposes. But I feel like that's the purpose that that particular word is serving there because it's writ so large, right? Um, by the accountant's keeping is, is in quotes. And it just feels like it's not just the accountant. It's also taking into all of these different uh, ways of accounting for different types of materiality and language.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. So we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for us to uh, spread wide our narrow hands, to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the art world. Danny Snelson, gather some paradise.
4: (laughs) Well, I want to gather up my fabulous host here in Philadelphia, uh, the DJ, archivist, bookseller, and poet Mark Johnson who has four, uh, an enormous output in the last couple of years. He's produced How to Flit, a book on Roof, Can of Humid Heat on Glass Books, After Such Knowledge Park on Make Now, and Treatise on Luck on Gauss PDF. And they're all interlocked, beautiful, strange literary objects that, that I think uh, anyone would be worth going out and finding. Thank you, Danny. Marjorie Gathers of Paradise.
1: I'll I'll give two things, and they were I. I wasn't prepared for the question because I always forget that you do this. But I'll do two. (laughs) But you
0: never lack for suggestions. I'll
1: do two. Well, yeah, but I forget names. My problem is there's a lot of poets I'd like to mention, but I forget names. But. I'll I'll give you one which is a book on contemporary French poetry. It's by it's by Jeff Barda, B A R D A, and it's an amazing book that is the first thing I've seen that gives us a real study and a real analysis of French poetry since 1950, right down to conceptualism, right down to people like Anne Portugal, Pierre Alferi. The other thing I also, and I forget the title of it, is Kenneth Goldsmith's new writing through Wittgenstein, which I think is just wonderful and one of his best books in years. And when I first got it, I... Thought, "Mm, I wasn't going to like it because I thought it's going to be too clever, you know, writing through the Tractatus. But he really read the Tractatus carefully this time. And it relates to every contemporary artist. There's so many people picked up on and their drawings. It goes back to his earlier work on drawings and very funny things. And in any case, the people in Vienna who've seen it want to have a whole show of the pages on the wall as an art show because they think it's so as an excellent comment younger man's younger person's commentary. So Thank I'll you. mention that.
0: Fantastic. Okay, Tracy. We're ready. We, we, <laughs> we're fastening our seatbelts.
2: Tap tapping away to make sure I get some of these titles I know, I right. I'm um, very excited. Um, been reading some books with some new poets. Uh, Melanie Marie Goudreau's Black Jelly, fabulous book by Gathering of the Tribes Press, uh, Yan Yi's uh, The Year of Blue Water, uh, who won the Yale Younger Poets Prize, uh, Asia Wadud's um, Crosslight for Young Bird, and Nightboat books, and Marwa Halal's Invasive Species. So I want to recommend those books. Really wonderful new voices.
0: Fantastic.
2: Nightbook one, yeah.
0: Thank you so much. Well, Okay, so I have two, since you did four. I get to do but two. But
2: I, I was quick. You
0: were quick. I don't know how quick I'm going to be. Um, first, I want, I, I want to get the... So, Danny Snelson is just paradise. You're a paradiesel. Um So, when I was out in L.A., Danny gave me his new book, Radios, this tiny little beautiful book. So, now, what happened is that in 1977, Ronald Johnson's book, Radios, uh, revises the first four books of Paradise Lost by excising words and discovers a modern and visionary poem within Paradise Lost. Okay, so now what Danny did, and you correct me if I get this wrong. So you use every word and punctuation mark in the Ronald Johnson writing through Paradise Lost in the endeavor to recompose, to re-recompose Paradise Lost. So wherever Ronald Johnson composed the holes, Danny fills them in and the result is this gorgeous little bit of Milton. Can you say more about that?
4: <laughs> Did uh, I get that right? Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, it's an exercise in failure, so it just constantly doesn't is not able to gather paradise lost properly. The, in the first line, I didn't have the word uh, fruits uh, of the forbidden tree. <laughs> I so love it. So I had it. to replace it with the word flutes, which at least sounds kind of similar. Worked really well. Yes. Yeah. I thought I was reading but Milton. as it goes, it gets worse. <laughs> it's also a lot
0: easier to read than Milton, and that's saying something. Uh, for, this, for my second uh, Gathering Paradise, I want to gather Charles Bernstein, who's sitting in the uh, engineering room, to come into the space here. And I want him to read a poem from his new book. Uh, it's a beautiful poem. It's short. And uh, here he is. So Charles, here's a microphone. He, he's, now Charles is being satirical of our you notes.: Charles it? This is the problem. Okay, No satire. Would you read this poem? Whoa. You'll have to come down to the okay. microphone. Yeah. Um,
3: well, I can There's a hole in my pocket for Tom Donovan. What if the mind didn't survive and only words were left? were not even words but flickering spaces between them which we thought we felt but now it's just you and me and neither of us can imagine how to say that or how not to thank you Very Charles <laughs> that was really
0: that was really lovely well, that's all the uh, shoring ourselves hour by hour we have time for on Poem Talk today. <laughs> poem Talk at the Writers' House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writers' House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Danny Snelson, Tracy Morris, Marjorie Perloff, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Emily Rush, and, to, and also to Charles Bernstein for reading a poem and, 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 making, fa- and making faces— uh, Throughout. Uh, and uh, a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. This is Al Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us again next month or again soon for another episode of Poem Talk.
2: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that was so much fun.